If you would, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. You're going to have to forgive me this morning. Allergies are a plague sent to curse the earth's rebellion. And I feel like I'm in a tunnel this morning, but we'll get through it. That song we just sang, um, one particular verse, is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. My sinless Savior died that my sinful soul might be free so that God would look on Him and pardon me. That's the gospel truth. And um, I hope we never tire of singing about such truths and worshiping the Lord over such matters. In Luke chapter 11, we come to the last half of a lengthy kind of teaching mixed conversation that Jesus has been having with this crowd of people. Um, It started in verse 14 where they have accused him of being demonic. Uh, Verse 16, they want to test him for more signs. And he's been defending himself and explaining himself. But we come to the last half of that section where he's addressing their request and test for a sign. uh, Further confirmation. And I want to set a question before you this morning as we begin. And the question is this, what do you think is the singular most important thing to God? If you could pick one thing that God would say, this is, without a doubt, the most important thing to me, what would it be? I doubt many of us have thought about that question or asked that question, and yet... It's a very important question for us. We want to know the heart of our God, right? We want to know what matters to Him. And so we set out in the Gospel of Luke. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week after week, trying to know our God and know the heart of God so that we can answer what is the most singular, important thing to the heart of God. Now, some in the world would answer, and we talked about this last week, some would say it's good behavior. God wants us to act appropriately. God wants our interactions with one another to be uh, morally correct. And that's true, but that's not the most important thing to God. Others might say, if you ask the average person on the streets, what do you think is the most important thing to God if God exists? They would say, probably social justice, right? Because they equate social initiatives with godliness. Some are, some aren't. If you ask some in the church today, what's the most important thing to God? They might say, well, maybe it's the Christian disciplines. You know, church attendance, tithing, evangelism, prayer. Maybe those are the most important things to God in relationship to us. Those things are important, but I don't know that they are the single most important thing to God. I think the single most important thing to our Creator, is acknowledging and honoring Him for who He is. I think everything boils down to that one singular truth and singular priority, knowing God. That is, above all, His highest priority. And and more than just acknowledging Him, but responding appropriately to Him. That's what it means to glorify God. To know Him as He is and to respond to Him accordingly. 
That's the point behind worship. To know God and respond accordingly. That's why we humble our hearts. That's why we pursue holiness. That's why we sing songs that are biblically sound, full of praise. We want to know God and respond to Him accordingly. And I would say that is the most important thing in the heart of God. I would say all of the Bible is given for that reason. I would say all of our ministry as Christians and all of our evangelism is practiced for that reason, to make God known. I would say all of our own very faith comes down to the basic and divinely important fact that God wants above all else to be known truly by His creation. And I don't mean just known of His existence. I mean known intimately, personally, His nature, His character, His own desires. Church, that is the foundation of our salvation. You are saved to know God. You are given the Bible to know God, to know who He is, to worship Him accordingly. And I would say God has gone to great, great lengths to make Himself known, hasn't He? We can look at creation, what we identify as general revelation, but the Bible says for sure creation is a way that you can see an aspect and a truth about God. You might not be able to know the Yahweh of the Bible looking at creation. You need special revelation for that, the Scriptures. But you can know of His power. You can know of His authority. You can know of His might. You can know of His control. All looking at creation. So in every turn of our existence, there's an opportunity for us to know something about God. Be reminded of something about God. He's gone to great lengths to making Himself known by giving us the written Scriptures. Well, we've said this before, but don't you know, O Christian, how significant this book is? We have it written. We have it inerrant. We have it timeless. And we can at any moment turn the pages of the Scriptures and know God. We're not talking know some ideology. We're not talking know some kind of principle. Know some kind of abstract thought. Some religious chant or system that needs to be adhered to. We're saying we can know from these pages the living, breathing God. God has gone to great lengths to make Himself known. Most ultimately, God has gone to great lengths to make Himself known through who? Christ. John chapter 1, the Word has become flesh. The self-revelation of God took on flesh to make known God. The person of God, the character of God, the heart of God. Church, it is without doubt that we can say God has done so much so that we might Know Him. And not just know His existence. Know His heartbeat. God wants you to relate to Him. It's of utmost importance. And yet since the fall. We are a people. Who have to constantly be reminded of who God is. Every moment of every day. We fight the battle of remembering truths about God. Don't we? Our finite minds forget our prideful hearts neglect, our independence, our facade of independence 
allows us to go through the day without considering or thinking upon the things of God. Since the fall, we need to be constantly reminded. And since the fall, I would say this has become God's major and singular mission to make himself known. For God cannot be worshipped and God cannot be glorified if he is not first known. And he would have us to know him. That is what I think the Bible means when the Bible says we are called to believe in God. Here's a crucial truth for you. Belief in God is more than just acknowledging His existence. Biblically defined belief in God is more than just merely acknowledging His existence. That is a crucial truth. When the Scripture talks of believing in God for salvation, it's talking way beyond just understanding that He's real. Biblical belief is submission-oriented and intimate in nature. And that definition... is what hinders many people from possessing saving faith. The Bible talks about believing in the sense of identifying God and the fact that He is actually God. And that what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, where God walked with them in the cool of the day in perfect communion, Biblical belief says God wants that again. And all of redemption and all of restoration is working to make that happen again. God has set in motion a plan of redemption and restoration so that one day those of us who are saved by faith in Christ can stand with God in a new heaven, a new earth, and know Him in the perfect communion that Adam and Eve did before the fall. That's God's heart. That's God's desire. And that's what it means to believe, to know him and pursue knowing him in such a fashion, to know him as he is, that he is God and he's worthy of our devotion and worthy of our loyalty and our service and our worship, worthy of our very lives. And he's worthy to be pursued after to know in great detail. It is not a waste of your time to devote yourself to studying the scriptures to know God. That is the utmost important thing to the Lord. But as I said, it's this biblical aspect of belief that trips many people up and prevents many people from possessing saving faith because they will acknowledge that God exists and they may even concede that He is supreme, but they are far from submitting to Him and far from walking with Him and far from knowing Him personally. That's what we find in the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. That's what has been taking place in this whole conversation with Jesus since He cast out the demon in verse 14. There's been this sharp and distinct contrast being drawn between those who merely acknowledge His power and His existence versus those who actually, truly realize His divinity and who He is as the Son of God. The example is verse 15 and 16. These people marveled that he cast out the demon in verse 14. They, they're in wonder. They acknowledge the miracle, the exorcism, and they don't question his power. They question his person. Maybe he's demonic. Verse 16, they want to test him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. They didn't think his miracle of casting out the demon signified God's divine work in him. That is a group of people actually the most of the crowd, 
And then there are some who, as we saw in verse 27 and 28, are, are like this woman who cry out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. I know who you are, Jesus. I know how significant you are. I acknowledge your existence. I know your power. I know you are God. That is the contrast being drawn in Luke chapter 11. Let me tell you, you fall in one of those two crowds. And how subtle can they be in distinguishing between the two? How many people would follow in the steps of these religious leaders or or the common people who are seeking yet a further sign from Christ? Yeah, I believe in Him. I, I know He exists. I know He's real. But they are far from the woman who cries out, I actually know who you are, Jesus. And, and blessed is the woman who bore you because you are the Son of God. That's a, a vastly different belief. Mere existence versus the person of Christ. That's the line being drawn. Those are one of the two camps we find ourselves in. And that's what Jesus has been addressing this whole time. And we said it a few weeks ago. If you get Christ wrong, you get everything wrong. And Jesus is working diligently here to correct that. So there are those who take up the pri- uh, most of, of the conversation. They're the primary crowd, primary group, and they're the ones who deny him. And they deny him by seeking a sign. So Jesus has addressed and and issued a defense to those who think in verse 15 he's demonic. Now verse 16, he's addressing those who keep seeking from him a sign as if verse 14, the, the casting out of the demon wasn't enough. And what it all comes down to here in the last portion of Luke 11, last half of this conversation is it comes down to Jesus's disgust and hatred for people requesting from him a sign in the Lord's eyes it's foolishness and he's going to explain why this isn't the first or the only time people have requested signs from Jesus in fact it happens often he has to address it often and every time he gives the same answer no why does he give that answer Is it that he wants to remain hidden? Well, he's going to tell us in this text that's not it at all. Doesn't he want people to believe? Most certainly he does. Let me be clear. He wants people to see him. He wants people to believe in him. His very incarnation is proof of that, isn't it? In fact, I think Jesus labors more diligently than anybody for people to believe in him. I think God himself is the greatest missionary. I thought of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, the end of his book. And there's a disciple after Jesus has resurrected. There's a disciple who has become known as Doubting Thomas. And in verse 24, we are introduced to this issue Thomas is having concerning belief in Christ. And we see how it's resolved. In verse 24 of John 20, John writes and says, Now Thomas, who was one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And appeared to them after his resurrection. So the other disciples began to tell him. We've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails. And unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails. And unless I place my hand into his side. I will never believe. What a absolute bold statement by Thomas. Verse 26. Eight days later. The disciples were inside again. And Thomas this time was with them. 
And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he looks to Thomas in verse 27, singles him out and says, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Christ goes to great lengths that Thomas may believe. Whatever obstacle you have, Thomas, whatever hindrance is in the way, I'm going to answer it. I'm going to resolve it. I'm going to make it clear. Put your finger here and put your hand here and believe in me. He wants us to believe. So his response to no, I will not request, I will not give in to your request for a sign is not that he doesn't want people to believe. The bottom line is that he has done enough signs and wonders and works and he's proclaimed his message loud enough that there is enough for full faith and revelation concerning who he really is jesus says no to the request for signs the reason is because there is no need for further signs if your eyes were opened and your heart was open and humble if you would look in faith and look at me correctly you would see who i am But the fact that you're requesting further confirmation means your heart is hard and closed. In fact, in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, he makes it very clear why Jesus performed miracles. One small portion of his sermon in Acts chapter 2 verse 22, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with many Mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. The proof is all there. There is no need for further signs. The problem lay with how you're looking at Christ. The answer to no, I will not perform any more signs for you. Is an answer of there is enough for you to see and believe. If only you will. And actually, as we talked to. A few weeks ago. The reality is this. No amount of signs. Would change a person's heart. If they are already close to Christ. How many people. Have said verse 16. If only you'll do a sign from heaven God. Then I'll believe in you. When all the while he's just cast out demons. He's just worked miracles of salvation. He's just answered. All your needs for a sign. Signs don't automatically result in faith. The real issue here is not that enough had been done to see and believe, which is what Jesus actually teaches in this text. It's it's not that they just happened to miss, miss out on this work or the other. It's that their request for more signs is nothing more than seeing and yet still not believing. What a dangerous place to be to see, to witness, and in our case, to hear the gospel and still not believe. Their request for signs reveals unbelief. And Jesus hates the request of signs because it means you have seen and you still don't get it. Church, you know how frightening that is in our time? You know how many people have the gospel preached over them regularly, hear it explicitly, and still don't believe? 
You know how many people hear the Scriptures opened and expounded and have the Spirit of God laboring to make known the person of Jesus Christ to them. And they hear the truths of who He is and yet still do not believe. We're talking biblical belief, right? Not just acknowledging His existence. I think most of us here today would acknowledge His existence in some form or another. We're talking submission-oriented, intimate, personal relationship with Christ. How many people hear the Gospel and have no relationship with Jesus? And that's what we find here. Your request for a sign is nothing more than seeing and not believing. And that's a bad bad place to be in. You are unconverted and uncircumcised in heart. Well, let's get to the text because these are all things Jesus is going to be laying out this morning. We start in Luke chapter 11, verse 29. And we find really that this request for further signs is equally offensive to Jesus as being accused of being demonic. So read with me in Luke chapter 11, verse 29. Luke reports and says, When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. Jesus is real seeker friendly, isn't he? This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting the lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. We start with the problem Jesus has for seeking signs. And He starts off with this very broad and universal statement. As the crowds increase, He makes this universal um, statement of really condemnation. He uses the language generation. And what that comes to tell us is really, even in our day and age, it's exceptional for people to believe in Jesus. To see and believe. In fact, it's uncommon. We live in Oklahoma. We live in the Bible Belt. People profess faith all the time. Uh, People know at least the main elements of the gospel. And yet, according to Scripture, it is uncommon for people to see Jesus as He truly is and believe in Him for salvation. The common reality is people rejecting Him. And so Jesus sees this crowd growing and He says, makes this universal statement, this generation is evil. It's wicked. And nothing, church, has changed. The world in which we live 
is a world where the majority will and where the majority does reject God. That will be the way until Christ comes back. In fact, very few people, according to Scripture, maintain that biblical defined belief of saving faith. There are those we've referenced Matthew chapter 7 before who will stand before Christ and they believed in the existence of Jesus because they claim, haven't we been doing these things in your name? But they didn't believe in saving faith and know Jesus. And so universally speaking, the reality is we face a world and live in a world where the vast majority of people will actually not know Christ and actually in turn reject Him. There are some who will believe. Some who will hear and see. But the generation we live in and the generation of Christ and every generation since and after is an evil generation. And why is it an evil generation? Jesus says, because you don't believe. You have the gospel. You have the scriptures. You have them proclaimed over you. You have my works done, performed before you in this particular context and you still don't believe. This is an evil generation. And he says in verse 29, because it seeks for a sign. That's nothing more in the Lord's eyes than denying who He is. To have it all laid before us. And to walk away unchanged and unbelieving with no faith is denying the message and person of Christ. It's as offensive as calling Him demonic. The truth, the tragic truth is that even after all of the things our Lord has done and all that He has taught, there are still people who deny His person and His message. Although His words are clear, His works are proof. What Stephen says in Acts 7 is already true. These are stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart. In fact, we're already witnessing what John described would be a mark of the life of Jesus. If you look in John chapter 1, verse 10, John has to say this as he's about to describe and lay out his gospel concerning the Lord. He says, verse 10 of chapter 1, Jesus was in the world and the world was made through Him Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. See, there's, there lies the problem. God is God, and He wants to be known, and deserves to be known and worship as God, yet people reject Him. Verse 10, John says, The world is made through Him. He is their Creator, yet the world didn't know Him. They didn't want to have anything to do with Him. Verse 11, He came to His own people, possession, lordship, kingdom, and yet His own people wouldn't receive Him. We have the God of creation here on display, and yet He will always be constantly rejected by the majority who denies person. Well, we've seen this theme come up in Luke 11 often. It is a dangerous place to be, to not be able to recognize the person or work of God in Jesus. And again, how often do we fit into these shoes of these people? Still seeking signs of proof. Still seeking signs of 
confirmation that God, you're real. That you love me. I tell people from time to time, it's not always a bad thing to struggle with doubt. Because if you struggle correctly, you come out on the other side with a stronger faith. But in reality, there is some truth to the statement that we should never doubt the love of God towards us because of the cross. What more can He do? What, what more does He have to say? And we at times still seek for signs, still seek for confirmation. Maybe not of His existence, maybe so of His existence, but maybe more that the Gospel's real and He's worth believing on. Well, let's not be this evil generation. The seriousness of the situation has increased when Jesus responds, you're an evil generation because you seek for a sign. Here's the, the seriousness elevated. No sign will be given. No other opportunity. I'm not going to cave into your request. I'm not going to sit under your pressure. I'm not going to stoop down to your low level of unbelief and, and, and try to do whatever you deem is appropriate. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. No sign will be given. You will either see as God has ordained or you will not. It sounds a lot like the rich man and Lazarus when the rich man goes to Hades and he says, Send back Lazarus, send back somebody to proclaim to my loved ones that God is real, this whole thing is real. And God says, if they don't believe Moses and the law, they're not going to believe a ghost. They're not going to believe a resurrected person. They're not going to believe anybody. And Christ is saying the same. If you don't see me as I am for what I, I say and what I do, you're not going to see any other way. No sign will be given. Except the sign of Jonah. What does that mean? What is the sign of Jonah? I think there's two answers here. And they both ultimately come down to one singular sign. You want to know what the greatest sign is for people to see and believe? It's Jesus Himself. It's that simple. But there's two answers that I think we can glean from this. The first one comes from Matthew chapter 12. The parallel text where Jesus is having the same conversation, same teaching, and he tells us what the sign of Jonah is. Verse 39. In Matthew's account, he calls the generation an evil and adulterous generation. Because when you deny God, you, you're replacing Him with something. It's an adultery against God. So he says, it's an evil and adulterous generation who seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, here's the sign. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is the first sign of Jonah? Church, it is the resurrection. Where Jesus will be like Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, and then by God's power brought back to life. Christ too will be three days in the grave and by God's power resurrected from the grave. The last several weeks God has been showing me the absolute importance of the resurrection, how central it is 
to our entire faith. And here it is again, a, a glimpse, a picture of how important Christ deems his resurrection. It's going to be a sign to the world, validation of the person and life and the work of Jesus himself. It's going to be the proof to everyone that everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did was true, was accurate and pleasing to the Father. The resurrection will be a sign that salvation has come from God in Christ. The resurrection will be a sign of hope and an eternal future with God. It will be a sign of victory over evil. It is the final and ultimate and singular confirmation of Christ. Don't look any further than the resurrection of Jesus. As the apostles go forth after the Holy Spirit's come in the book of Acts, as they go forth through the beginning chapters of Acts, they are over and over and over again testifying, witnessing to the resurrection of Christ. He is not just man, He is God. And that's of the utmost importance in understanding Him. And He is to be believed upon. And He is to be known as such. And approached as such. And related to as such. The second answer, I think, when it comes to the sign of Jonah is the message of Jonah. Luke's uh, kind of structure and language pushes us towards this direction. So Christ interprets it in Matthew 12 uh, as the resurrection. Luke adds to that a little bit. Uh, doesn't take away from it, doesn't negate it, but he's also teaching us something uh, in addition to it. The message of Jonah. The message of Jonah was one of repentance, wasn't it? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your wickedness, turn from your unbelief, and turn to God. That's the message. And Christ says, I am bringing you the same sign now. Repent and believe. What other sign do you need? It's a sign, the same message, it's a sign given with much more clarity and force and power with Christ. And it's the same message that will be, be proclaimed to every generation. The message of repentance is a sign of mercy and grace and available forgiveness. It's the message of our very salvation, right? A sign of hope, a sign of eternity. Unfortunately, these people have not listened. These people have not paid attention. Although the message is crystal clear, their hearts are found to be far from Jesus, blinded by darkness, and hard to the truth. And again, how many, how many sit in their seat hearing the same message of repentance, the same message of salvation in Jesus, the same message of the kingdom of God is at hand and it's coming and you must be prepared for it. And yet they are not paying attention and they have not listened and their hearts are far from Christ and blinded by darkness and they are found to be hard to the truth. Don't be the unbelievers who do not acknowledge Christ appropriately in this text. Do not be the fool who has all the signs necessary to know God and misses out on all of them. Jesus shows their arrogance by way of two examples in this text. Verse 31 and 32. Two, two groups of people, one person, one group. 
that he says prove their ignorance, their foolishness. The first one is the queen of the south. It's the queen of Sheba. And in verse 31 he says, she will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and she's going to condemn them. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She was willing to travel across countries, land, to get an ounce of godly wisdom. And Jesus says, she pursued something lesser and you won't even pursue something greater. Because something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the wisdom of Solomon and the understanding of Solomon. It's Christ Himself, the ultimate King of Israel. The one who is the very source of Solomon's wisdom and understanding. She will condemn you because you won't even come for the greater one. Next, verse 32, the men of Nineveh, they're going to rise up at the judgment with this generation and they too are going to condemn you because they listen to a lesser prophet and I am here and greater. They repented at the preaching of Jonah who was a chaotic and somewhat confused prophet and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's me, the prophet of God, speaking God's message personally. And yet you won't even listen to me. Well, the same can be said here, church. The queen of the south and the men of Nineveh will rise up and at the judgment with our generation and condemn it because they have not listened and pursued Christ. It's a staggering place to be. But it's the truth of all who pursue something greater than Jesus. Who look to Jesus and say, I need something more still. Greater proof, greater confirmation. Jesus hates the request of signs because it's foolishness and it displays nothing more than ignorant unbelief and denial of His divinity. But what's the answer real quick this morning? Verses 33 to 36 is is the solution to seeking for a sign. If we're not supposed to seek for signs, if Christ doesn't like that, and if the pursuit of signs and proof of God serve as nothing more than confirmations and revelations of unbelief, then what is the answer? What's the solution? What should we be doing? Verse 33, Jesus says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket. They want the light to be seen. The same is true with Christ and the kingdom of God. God wants the light of His kingdom to be seen. It's not hidden. It's not placed in secret. There's not some secret knowledge or secret ritual you have to be doing. You don't have to sow a a check of faith or a seed of faith or send in money to understand something of the kingdom of God. Christ says it's plain. It's set right before you. We, the Trinity, want you to see it. We want you to know the kingdom of God. It's not difficult It's so simple a child can see and believe and have faith. The problem comes down with your heart. Verse 34, Jesus says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. It's not the light of your body. It's the lamp of your body. The thing that gives off the light. And what does he mean by eye? He's not talking about our physical eyes, right? He's talking singular here. And he's talking about the eyes of our hearts. 
Scripture is clear. The heart that seeks God sincerely will, by God's grace, find Him. He goes on to say, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. There's something right to be done here. And there's something wrong because when your eye is bad, your body's full of darkness. What does he mean by healthy? What does he mean by bad? We know what a bad heart is, right? A bad heart is hard and unrepentant. And in its pride, it's unwilling to see God at work in Christ. A bad heart is a prideful heart. Unyielding to the Spirit of God. And how many, again, people hear the Gospel, sense the conviction of God's Spirit, and are too prideful in their reputation to yield. So what's a healthy heart? A healthy heart is one that's humble and open and again sincere, seeking God. And that heart will, verse 36, prove to be a lamp that shines very brightly. The warning is verse 35. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful lest you think light is shining in your heart and it's actually darkness taking over. Be careful lest your heart be bad and not healthy. How many how many think their hearts to be healthy and believing in God and will be rudely awakened to find their hearts are bad and far from Christ? Again, you have one of two options out of Jesus' conversation here in Luke. You can be the people who deny Him by classifying Him as demonic or seeking more signs of confirmation from Him, who have a false sense of belief, they know and acknowledge His existence and power, or you can be those who know Him personally, yield to His Spirit, and have a relationship with Him. This is a text that confronts the unbeliever. This is a text that will expose the false believer. And this is a text that will increase our faith as Christians and how we are to approach God. God wants to be known. And He takes it very seriously that He be known as He is for who He is. That we look to the Scriptures and know Christ. That we cling to the cross, the cross and know His love. That we look to the resurrection as the complete and full validation of who He is and of our eternity with Him. Take Christ for who He is, Christian, and cling tightly to Him and let nothing slip in and lead you astray concerning His person. Do not get Jesus wrong. False believer, do not believe ignorantly. Do not merely acknowledge His existence. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that belief just matters of of conceding to His power. Belief implies submitting to Him. Belief implies intimate relationship with Him. And if you are on the fence about Christ, His reality, His existence, don't think you can be there forever. God will be known. So much so that He says in Philippians 2, one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. I will be known. Church, I will be known. Either now, We're at the judgment. Don't wait to the judgment. Don't let the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh rise up against you. 
Run to Christ. Heed the sign of the resurrection. Heed the sign of the message of the gospel and believe. Lord, words cannot express how significant it is that you have made yourself known to us. And I believe with all my heart that is what is important to you. You want us to know you. And commune with you, fellowship with you, relate to you. God, how many people are stuck in a, in a false faith and thinking they believe and have salvation and yet do not. God, we're all guilty of needing further proofs and further confirmations. Help us to look to Your Word and look to Your resurrection and look to the cross with faith. Let us come to You sincerely and in humility, not in pride. Help our hearts to be healthy and not bad. Let us see the light of Your kingdom clearly and not be led astray. O Lord, work this Word into our hearts that the lost may be saved and that Your children may be strengthened in their faith and relationship to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.